Topic for today, the Christian discovery of the rabbis and the Mishnah in 18th century England. Anybody know anything about that before we start? No. Okay, good. Okay, thank you, Ari. And uh, time check, so I know exactly, I don't lose a minute of my 45. Uh, 25 after, okay, so that means at 10 after I have to stop, right? Uh, oh, a little more flexible, you don't have to go back to work tonight. Well, some of us do, the rest of so um, first thing I'm going to say, or I'm going to use this thing tonight. I'm going to mention about five or six names, but I'm only going to write two on the board that I think are, that are really important. Uh, I might have mentioned them in the email I wrote to Ari, but I want to write them again. One is a guy named William Wooten. And another has a very strange name called Wilhelm Surenusius. Surenusius. Now I must tell you, um, of all the lectures I'm giving, uh, I was most hesitant to put this one in because um, I think I, I may have given it once to a, a non-academic audience, but I can't even remember that. I, it, it is an academic lecture, uh, but I pride myself on being accessible. Uh, and you guys, and it's really a tribute to you that I can pull this off. In other words, well, we'll see if I pull it off. Uh, <laughs> But I, I am really speaking about a subject that you will not found, find in your Wikipedia articles. Uh, it is the only one that has written on this happens to be me, unfortunately, uh, in a book that I published in 2007 called Connecting the Covenants uh, about Jews and Christians in 18th century England. Um, so it is really based on my own work. Uh, and we're going to look at two texts uh, at the end. Uh, so, so Indeed, I, I, I pay you tribute by not speaking down to you, but speaking really up. Uh, and if, I, if, you, if you're lost, just put your hand up and stop and just ask me a question. We, we know each other well enough uh, at this stage. The second thing I want to say is to go back to the general theme and to talk about what I'm really doing here. These are not isolated lectures. Uh, the lecture that I gave on PICO is very much related to this lecture. And the, the final lecture, which is about my own present research, uh, I don't know when that is in this series, but um, uh, th that too uh, will involve material that, uh, that no one else has talked about, or I mean, at least not recently. Um, you recall that my interest was in looking at nuance in terms of the relationship between Jews and Christians across history. We know about hostilities. Uh, we know about charges of deicide and all of that, and uh, we know about the pogroms uh, and the history of anti-Semitism. Um, but there is another side, and the relationship between Jews and Christians is a much more complicated one than simply painting aggressors and, uh, and, and victims. Um, and we saw on the Jewish side clearly an attempt to also respond back with a certain aggressive tone. Yes, there is clearly that in the relationship. But there are also moments of affection and love and appreciation uh, and mutual recognition. Uh, and it seems to me that in the world that we live in now, uh, not only Jews and Christians, but of course Jews and Muslims and Christians and Muslims, of course, um, we need to look for these moments of the past which help nourish uh, our own understanding and relationship with, with present day uh, Christianity, uh, Catholic, Protestants, and so on. Uh, so therefore, it seems to me that there is a, you know, a kind of um, relevance to this topic. 
So what I did in the, my first lecture, as you recall, was to try to reconstruct a particular moment in the Renaissance where Jews and Christians found a common interest in the Kabbalah, in the mystical traditions of Judaism. And Kabbalah, therefore, uh, ironically and paradoxically became the bridge by which a group of Christian intellectuals, particularly a figure named Pico della Mirandola, uh, rediscovered the Jewish past because they thought the Kabbalah was ancient, not, not medieval or, or early modern. Um, and uh, the Kabbalah became a link by which uh, they looked at Christianity uh, and they looked at Judaism and they tried to make some sense out of it. So this is the beginning of what I spoke of as a, a remarkable development in the early modern period, which is described in the second uh, chapter of my book, uh, or I think it's, no, the third chapter, Knowledge Explosion, the book that you have, um, uh, Christian Hebraicism. Uh, again, Christian Hebraists existed before the early modern period, but this is the period where clearly Jews and Christians are trying to seek each other out. And part of this, of course, is because of a technological invention called print and the availability of books uh, and mutual study, uh, which goes on uh, uh, both within the Christian and the Jewish world. Now that brings me to another chapter in this history of Christian Hebraicism. We are now, we have moved from uh, 15th, uh, early 16th century Italy to um, the beginning of the 18th century uh, in England. Um, I won't tell you how I got into England. When I, after I wrote several books on Italian Jewry, I became fascinated with England. Part of my reason was, you know, this was before the, you know, the internet made everything available online. Uh, I needed an excuse to go spend time in London, so therefore, why not work in the British Library and uh, et cetera. Uh, but beyond that, um, it is very interesting how England sort of entered my consciousness, primarily through my interest in the history of science, because after speaking about Galileo and, and the whole Italian context of science, I needed to jump to Newton. Uh, and Newton and, of course, John Locke and all of these figures, what relationship do they have to Jews and Judaism? And I, of course, discovered one. So all of a sudden I was in England. But then England took on a larger uh, dimension. So this, uh, the book that I wrote in 2007, I was actually the director of the Katz Center as well. So I was very proud of writing this book because I, I didn't have much time to write books. Um, involves uh, several characters. One is a convert, which I'm not going to talk about tonight. But the second half of the book is a group of, uh, of Christian Hebraists. Um, and their rediscovery, not simply of the Torah or the Tanakh, but of rabbinic Judaism. So what I want to call this is a chapter in Christian rabbinism, which is different. You know, the rabbis are something that Christians hated. I mean, rabbis, halakha, law, uh, Jewish texts. What the hell would, would, would a Christian be interested in this kind of stuff? Uh, Kabbalah, maybe that's, that's exotic, that's, uh, that's interesting, uh, that's uh, magical, et cetera, et cetera, as we talked about. But what about just Jewish law itself? And this brings me to make sure you understand what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Mishnah. Who could offer me a clear definition of what is the Mishnah? Have any of you studied Mishnah before? I know he has, but, uh, 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 but, but tell me what the Mishnah is, because that's what we're going to be speaking about tonight. Yes? Cliff notes. <laughs> Cliff notes? Uh, 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 all right, go. Yeah, try, try, try again. Yeah. 
it's the first uh, written codex of uh, Jewish law of the oral uh, Torah. Okay, uh, supposedly edited by Judah uh, Nasi. Yeah. yeah. All right, Judah the Prince. Right. All right, around two. So we're talking about a text that appears in about 200 CE, which is the foundational text of the entire Talmud. In other words, we have the Talmud is made up of more than two parts, but the two key parts are Mishnah, Gemara, right? The Gemara was a, a kind of, it, I wouldn't even call it a commentary, I would call it a kind of discussion which begins with a Mishnah, which could be as long as a paragraph, but then the Gemara goes on for page after page after page in the Talmud and so on. The Mishnah, of course, is the kernel, is, is the foundational stone, and it was edited around 200 CE, meaning that it reflects rabbinic culture for several centuries before, uh, and indeed it reflected two, uh, there were really two novelties that are going on here. Number one, uh, the rabbis in previous centuries had believed that Judaism was a twofold law. There was a written text, which of course was the biblical text, but the oral law, Torah Shebaalpeh, or Torah Shebichtav in Hebrew, the oral law were the interpretations which rabbis brought to these texts to make them specific, to make them livable, to make them applicable to this world in which Jews lived. Um, by writing down the oral law, of course, it becomes a written text as well, which is a very important, uh, it's as revolutionary as when I was speaking about the printing of the Talmud or the printing of the rabbinic Bible and so on in the 16th century. But just writing down transforms what is a very fluid, ongoing process into something which becomes more, in other words, we have a text which we don't change, we simply comment upon and add commentary to it. The other innovation of the Mishnah besides take transforming the oral into the written, is that uh, it uh, was re a reorganization of knowledge. That is, uh, up until this point, essentially a Jew would study a biblical text and would determine the law, in other words, the commentary or the oral traditions were based upon the order within the biblical text. So, for example, you know, lots of law in Leviticus. So, therefore, we have, uh, you know, and these are called midrashim. There are two kinds of midrashim, midrash halacha, midrash agada. These are things that if you've studied, I'm sure, in the past with people like Gaffney and so on, you, you got into much more. I'm not teaching rabbinic Judaism here. But, but the key thing about the Mishnah is a reorganization according to subject. So, no longer is it dependent on the text in the Bible itself, but is reorganized and, we, and there are six orders of the Mishnah. Okay, now that's all I'm gonna say about the Mishnah. What I wanted to tell you, which you probably don't know, is that the early modern period, now back to my own period of time, which is uh, you know, from the late 15th century on uh, until somewhere in the 18th century, the end of, at the end of the 18th century perhaps, um, there is a remarkable revival of interest in the Mishnah. Not the entire Talmud, but primarily the Mishnah. This is the age of the Mishnah. And when I say this is the age of the Mishnah, I mean two things. I mean both Jews and Christians. Are they related, these phenomena? I'm not sure. I don't know. But what is interesting is how the Mishnah becomes a subject of study in an intense way, unlike earlier periods, both within the Jewish world 
and our story tonight, The Christian World. Let me just mention to you some of the aspects of the Jewish rediscovery of the Mishnah. The most famous person, and this is my segue into uh, tomorrow night, since I'm talking about Prague, the most famous person to revive Mishnah study in the 16th century was the great rabbi of Prague named the Maharal of Prague. He focused uh, his attention negatively against what he called Talmudic Pilpul, uh, this kind of ongoing you know, legalistic uh, discussions of the Talmud, and said that a student needs to return to the purity of that early foundation of Judaism called the Mishnah. So he focused on the independent study of the Mishnah within 16th century Prague. I won't say anything more about him tonight because I'm going to be speaking about him tomorrow night uh, and he's a subject unto himself, but clearly uh, a Mishnah study is something associated with the Maharal. But the Mishnah is one of the earliest books that are published during the age of printing. And along with uh, the Mishnah, we have famous commentaries that are written on the Mishnah. The most famous commentary is Maimonides' commentary himself. That links to a previous uh, lecture of mine. But we have a, another famous Jew in the 15th and 16th century named Ovadia Bertanora. Uh, isn't there a wine of uh, Bertanora? I don't know. Bartonora, same, yeah, 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 from, uh, from Italy. Uh, so he was a commentator on the Mishnah. Uh, and another very famous commentator of the period is the Tosafos Yom Tov, Yom Tov Lipman Heller, uh, who was an Eastern European Jew uh, and also a student of the Maharal of Prague. Um, so in other words, all of a sudden we have the Mishnah appearing as a single text with commentaries which are studied in their own right. So clearly you could say this is for more, less advanced students, but it also became a kind of fad. But there's an even in, more interesting dimension of the study of Mishnah within the Jewish world. The Mishnah becomes one of the major subjects of study of Kabbalists, I'm bringing back Kabbalah again, in Safed in the 16th century. Mishnah in Safed, in Sfat, the Kabbalists study the Mishnah. How do they study the Mishnah? A totally different way than the Maharal of Prague or these commentaries. They recited the words out loud in a kind of sing-song fashion, memorizing them and singing them in a way which brought about kind of mystical uh, activity, uh, mystical feeling, uh, a kind of sensation of God. I don't know if you've ever read Mishnah. It's not that exciting a work. It's kind of really boring. How do you get there to mystical activity? I have no idea. I, I also don't, have no idea how, why these Christians fell in love with the Mishnah and saw it as a way of getting to Jesus Christ. But that's besides the point. We'll get there in a second. Uh, but clearly, this was another dimension of uh, the, the, the career of the Mishnah in the early modern period. One final example of the Jewish, and then I switch to the Christian. Uh, and that is, um, in the 17th century, the great rabbi, this is another lecture, I, everything is connected here, as you see. Uh, the great rabbi of Amsterdam, actually bookseller of Amsterdam, he wasn't necessarily a rabbi, but he's called a rabbi anyway, Menashe ben Israel, um, publishes with a group of Christians, so this is both a Jewish and a Christian enterprise. Amsterdam became a very important center for Jewish printing, uh, and, and it soon superseded even Venice itself. Um, he published a... Mishnah Menukedet. Tell us what that is, David. Well, Nekudot is a vocalization. 
In other words, a Mishnah with, you know, the Patach and the Kamats, punctuated Mishnah. Now, who do you think that was written for? Most Jews who study the Mishnah don't need uh, punctuation. You just read the Hebrew. Ah, but, you know, he was dealing there with an illiterate Jewish public, sure. But we're talking about the 17th century now. So who could have read that? Yeah. Conversos, good, because Amsterdam was a community of conversos. Okay, so they were returning to Judaism. This was a vehicle by which they could learn. But at the same time, it could also be read by Christians who were interested in the Mishnah. So in other words, it served double duty here. The, the, the Kabbalah, uh, the, the, the Mishnah, uh, the, the vocalized Mishnah, of, uh, uh, it was actually published in, I don't have the date, 1642. Um, so uh, another example of the place of the Mishnah and Jude, you want to ask a question? Yeah, just given his role in, in the Spinoza case, I don't know that he was targeting Christians. I think that he was targeting his own school that he had in Amsterdam. Spinoza you'll hear more about as well. Uh, I would love to give a whole lecture on Spinoza, but I'm not going to move in that direction right now. But, oh, but, uh, but no, thank you for mentioning that. That's certainly part of the same world of Menashe and Israel. Um, and uh, we will, I'm, I'm going to give a whole lecture in Amsterdam, so I, will, I, will, I promise you to come back to that. Now let me introduce my own subject. So uh, now I, I want to speak about the Christian side. And here, it's really quite remarkable. Beginning as early as the 17th century and even into the 16th century, a group of Christian scholars who had previously studied the Kabbalah or had studied Bible or biblical commentaries. In other words, that is the first stage of Christian Hebraicism. Now want to get into heavy-duty Judaism, namely the rabbis. Why they do this, what motivates them, you know, given the fact that they had criticized the notion of the rabbis, of the old law, of the Pharisaic legislation, uh, of the legalism of Judaism, and therefore they sought its spirituality. Why would they return now to this is very hard to say, but what emerges in the 17th century are a group of Christian scholars, many of them teachings in, in the universities of Northern Europe, particularly Oxford and Cambridge. There are two major sites of uh, Christian Hebraicism. If you want to see one of the great Judaic libraries of the world, besides the one that we have at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, come to go to Oxford, which is even much larger to say. Oxford is one of the great uh, uh, um, repositories of Hebrew books collected by these Christian Hebraists who taught at Oxford for several generations, for several uh, centuries, uh, and Cambridge as well. Cambridge, of course, houses the Cairo Geniza, which is a story unto itself. But in addition, uh, the collections, or the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, for example, collections of Jewish books from all over the world collected by these Christian scholars. So there are already long traditions of the study of Christian, uh, of Hebraic works by Christians. But now all of a sudden we see various Christian scholars beginning to publish masechtot, or sections of the Mishnah, in Latin and getting them out there. And side by side with this, and I'm really not going to talk about this tonight, but I just want to mention it in one sentence. The Mishneh Torah of Maimonides, remember that code of Jewish law that some of you heard me lecture on Maimonides uh, Yesterday, I don't remember what, I mean, it's all blurred. I hope it's not blurred for you as well. But uh, in any case, uh, his code of Jewish law was also sections of it were being translated into Latin. So all of a sudden, these Christians become interested in Jewish law. 
The one I'm going to talk about the most is this guy, Surinusius, and his disciple, who, Surinusius, as you will see in a second, I'm going to talk about him directly, who lived from 1698, uh, no, no, excuse me, he, he wrote between 1698 and 1703, finally completed a process begun by about 20 different Christian scholars of translating the entire Mishnah into Latin. The edition of Surinusius is unbelievable. We have a copy in our pen library. It has beautiful colored plates. Uh, on the cover of my book, uh, Connecting the Covenants, is a remarkable plate of Moses receiving the law. And there's a picture of Moses with his carnet or. How do you translate that? The Israelis is uh, his, 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 yeah, as, as if they, they mistranslated. They thought he had horns of light. Um, but what is remarkable about this Surinusius text, to give you an idea where this guy is going, he writes below, this is the giving of the Torah, but he says, Torah Sheba'al Peh, the oral law. Now what Christian could care about the oral law? The oral law is wrong, it's rabbinic Judaism, it's something we discarded in favor of the New Testament. But nevertheless, Surinusius writes, Torah Sheba'al Peh on this picture. So we have, we, first of all, we have these beautiful illustrations, we have folio edition of this Mishnah, and just to show you what the world of the Christian Hebraicism is all about, you have three commentaries on the same page. One is by Maimonides, one is by Bertinor, the two standard commentaries of the Mishnah, and guess who wrote the third commentary? Mr. Surinusius himself. And they all appear on the same page. He says, if they're gonna be there, I'm gonna be there with them. So we have a Christian commentary and two Jewish commentaries, all in Latin, with long introductions by this extraordinary guy. So I, I will talk more about him in just a second. Um, but clearly, um, um, th this begins a story. So I'm going to tell you very quickly the story leading up to Surinusius and his disciple Wooten. The next step, as you will see when we enter the 18th century, is Wooten, a disciple of Surinusius, deciding it is not good enough for scholars, this Mishnah. We need all seminarians to read the Mishnah, and we need all Christians to read the Mishnah as well. Believe it or not, the Mishnah we're talking about, again, boring legal code, all right? I, I don't wanna, uh, you know, somebody may love the Mishnah here, I don't wanna say anything bad about it, but uh, Wooten begins to translate into English. Uh, so we have, so Wooten has translated several Masech Tod into English for us, and what we're going to be reading at the end of this lecture, if I don't I better move quickly, uh, is um, um, uh, something from his commentary in English. So eventually this process, uh, and it's really not, never finished until the 20th century when Herbert Danby, uh, those of us who went to rabbinical school and needed ponies, you know, the Mishnah has been translated into English by a Christian Hebraist of the 20th century named Herbert Danby from England. So, the, so in other words, the process is not finished until the 20th century, but it begins at the beginning of the 18th century here. So Christians falling in love with the Mishnah, that's the subject of tonight. So let me tell you how this story begins. I'm gonna mention a number of names, and I don't expect you to remember these names. Um, I could write them down if you care that much, uh, but, I, but I, uh, these were the only two that I thought were important enough. I begin my story with a group of scholars that lived in the time of Newton. One of them was called William Whiston, not as opposed to William Wooten. He lived from 1667 to 1752. He was a rather eccentric advocate and popularizer of the Newtonian cosmology. 
and the author of numerous works on mathematics, physics, and astronomy. But remember, this is a world where religion and science are conjoined, as it was in Newton. Remember, Newton wrote commentaries on the Bible, and uh, he was interested in the Kabbalah and all of these things as well uh, as his great you know, understanding of physics. Whiston also wrote a work in 1722 called An Essay Towards Restoring the True Text of the Old Testament and for Vindicating the Citations Made Thence in the New Testament. Now, what's this all about? By the beginning of the 18th century, a world of scholarship had emerged to challenge the very foundations of Christianity. New texts, new discoveries, new extra-biblical texts, and new methods. We could sort of sum it up by talking about, on the one hand, historicism, in other words, putting things in historical context, and therefore not simply accepting them on the basis of faith. And on the other hand, uh, a, a new field of linguistics. Of, of this philology, of studying these texts very carefully. For example, in, in, the, in, this, in the end of the 16th century, uh, Christian scholars discover two new biblical texts, or at least close to the biblical text, written by the Samaritans, a very ancient biblical group. They had never known about these texts before, but they discovered them. They began to discover other texts that were written around the New Testament period. Uh, and putting these all together, and of course, rediscovering uh, uh, ancient uh, scholars like Philo and Josephus. Whiston himself was the English translator of the entire Josephus. I forgot to mention that. That's quite important. Uh, if you look at old editions of Josephus, the first century historian of the Jews, they are by William Whiston. So this guy was clearly knew his biblical text and knew his ancient history as well. Uh, so all of a sudden, this new scholarship emerged. And it very much challenges the assumptions of these Christian scholars. And particularly on one point, the New Testament is based upon the Old Testament, of course. The New Testament is a kind of commentary uh, or another additional layer of understanding of the Old Testament. And the New Testament often cites the Old Testament. However, it seems to cite it incorrectly. What's going on here? How could the New Testament misquote a, uh, uh, something from the Old Testament? If both are the words of God, how can you have an inconsistency between the New and the Old Testament? Now, that may not seem like a big problem for you, but if you're a serious Christian cleric, in the beginning of the 18th century, it's a major problem. And now all of these new extra texts and these different versions of the Bible we have in our library at Penn a whole, uh, about 10 different polygot Bibles. You know what a polygot Bible is? These scholars put together massive Bibles with all kinds of, with Latin, Greek, uh, Hebrew, uh, the Samaritan text, all on one page. You could sort of compare word by word. You know, these were the, the literal understanding of God. These things were really very serious. But all of this seemed to be uh, undermining the very simple foundation of the New Testament and the truth of Christianity. And therefore, what I want to suggest is a kind of epistemological crisis. William Whiston looks at this problem and he says in his book of 1722, there's a real problem. There's a disconnect between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And therefore, since the New Testament is God's word, the Old Testament must be messed up. The Old Testament must it was the work of those damn Jews who put this into Hebrew and misquoted it and Therefore, we have an in inauthentic Old Testament. And what we Christians have to do now, armed with our new knowledge of Hebrew, we have to rediscover from different manuscripts the real version, not the Masoretic text of the Jews, but the real version which we will reconstruct. 
And believe me, throughout the 18th century, there were a whole group of Christians that tried to create an alternative Hebrew Old Testament or Tanakh. They ultimately failed because the Masoretic text was the best and that you couldn't do better than that. But nevertheless, Wiston thought, so essentially the solution to the problem is to create a new Tanakh uh, so that because the New Testament could not be wrong. Of course, Wiston uh, uh, had his critics. And what emerges in this incredible pamphlet war, I mean, these people are, you know, you, all these things for one shilling, you can buy this pamphlet, that pamphlet, uh, unbelievable. And they're all in the British Library, so it's unbelievable to, to read all of these things. Uh, there are at least 22 pamphlets written against Whiston's work, but the one that I want to single out was by a very interesting man named Anthony Collins. Collins was a well-known free thinker, uh, associated with a group of free thinkers that was emerging in the 18th century, in other words, challenging the very foundations of traditional Christianity. So first of all, the traditionalists like Whiston wouldn't take him seriously in the first place, but nevertheless, in 1724, he wrote a response to Whiston called A Discourse on the Grounds and Reasons of the Christian Religion. He said, it's kind of silly to think that the Old Testament is a forgery or is a misquotation. Mis uh, the Jews knew Hebrew better than anyone else, and let's, let's take seriously their work. We can never replace their work by a new version of the Tanakh, and therefore we need to accept this. So what are we going to do with the New Testament? We have to read the New Testament text, not literally, but uh, metaphorically, allegorically. In other words, let's not make this direct connection. It's not going to work. Uh, but of course, uh, he was a free thinker, and the more traditional Christians found uh, this to be extremely wanting. Uh, so the problem remained. In other words, what do we do? Do we get rid of the Old Testament? Do we accept the fact that the New Testament is not literal? That the New Testament scholars can make it? In other words, there was a certain quandary here, a kind of uh, epistemological, or I, I use our favorite word, a hermeneutical kind of quandary in trying to figure out how one interprets Christianity vis-a-vis -vis its Hebrew base, okay? So you're still with me, all right? Now we enter Mr. Surinusius. So Surinusius, as I said, was the author of the Mishnah. Uh, I, believe it or not, this week I just got a, um, a, uh, a Skype call from my colleague in Oxford, and she said to me, uh, I, this is really quite a co coincidental, uh, her, her name is Joanna Weinberg, she's an incredible scholar, um, and she said, we are organizing, you know, they have research groups at Oxford, we're organizing a research group and we want you to be a part of it on the study of the Mishnah in the early modern Europe, and both me and my husband, he was also a very distinguished scholar, he was the uh, librarian of the Bodleian Library in Oxford, uh, are going to study Surinusius. Uh, amazing. I mean, you know, I, I, I wrote on Surinusius, but I, I didn't study him like. So, you see, I, at least um, uh, among some esoteric scholars, this is, this is relevant. Uh, that's what I'm trying to say. All right, so, but Surinusius did something else, which is amazing. So, I want to introduce you to what he was doing. He was a professor in uh, Amsterdam, at the University of Amsterdam. I go by the old building of the University of Amsterdam every time I'm there, and I'll be there uh, in February. Um, and... Um, he, uh, he learned Hebrew in a way that was unbelievable. We have a copy of the books in his Hebraic library. It is almost every 
print from the 16th and 17th century. He read everything. I mean, these, at this, this is, you know, it begins in a rather primitive way in the age of Pico, but by this time, there are scholars who are just absorbing everything that they can possibly read that's Hebraic, including the rabbinic materials. Before he published the Mishnah, he published a, a small book. Called, it's in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. I can only remember the Hebrew title. It's called Sefer HaMashveh or Book of Comparison, something like that. What does he do? He tells the story of this quandary, basically, that I've been describing to you. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm sitting on a bench in Amsterdam, and I'm, I'm contemplating how the hell are we going to connect the New Testament with the Old Testament? Notice the name of the, the title of my book, Connecting the Covenants, the, 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 two, the, two, the, the New and the Old Testament. Um, the New Testament doesn't fit the, new, the Old Testament. It misquotes it. So there's either the Old Testament is wrong or the New Testament is wrong. It's impossible that both of them are, are wrong. So what do we do? Just so happens that sitting on the park bench was a rabbi. Now this rabbi, I don't know what kind of rabbi. It must have been at least a reform rabbi. It couldn't have been a serious rabbi. No, I, I, forgive me. I'm, I'm a reform rabbi too, so I take it back. Um, no disparaging remarks about reform Judaism. Uh, so... Um, um, uh, I'm a proud Reformed Jew. So in, in any case, um, uh, the rabbi says to him, so he tells the rabbi his problem. And the rabbi said, oh, I can solve that problem. <laughs> you have to go study Mishnah. And, and particularly, you have to learn the Midot of Hillel. Uh, what are the seven Midot? Testing my Israeli scholars uh, here. You know what I'm talking about? You mean the hermeneutic principle? Yeah, you got it. The hermeneutical principles. Kalva Homer. Kalva or you got it. I didn't have to, you know, you know American born. All right. Exactly. And she adds, what, 30? 32. 32. So in other words, 13, right, exactly. Sorry. So, so we have, we have, we have uh, the hermeneutical principles. What are the hermeneutical principles? These are methods by which we read the text. For example, and you have to do it with body motion also. If this is the case, how much the more so? That's, that's an example of rabbinic logic. Now we have a whole, and we have Gezerah Shavah, for example, another one. So these are all, these are principles by which we read and study the Torah. The rabbi says to this Christian scholar, go learn the, uh, the, the, the rabbinic uh, midot, the, the, these principles and then apply them to reading the New Testament and you'll figure out how this all works. In other words, you're simply working in a logical system that doesn't make sense because you don't know rabbinic Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism can save Christianity. It's not a wonderful thing. <laughs> so he goes back and he, so he writes this book, Save Ram Hashem. What is it? It's an exposition of the Midot of Judaism. He goes through each one of them, explains them very carefully. In the second half of the book, he reads the New Testament through the lens of these midot. Does it work? I don't know. I, 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 I reserve judgment. But what the, it's incredible, the idea that the rabbis need, that Christianity is in crisis, and the rabbis are now coming along to save Judaism, to save Christianity. Uh, so thus, thus he devotes six years to completing the process of publishing the entire Mishnah. Now, one other thing about Surah which is really crazy, and I, I actually... Um, it's a lot of Latin, and I read you know, fair amounts of Latin, but my friend uh, who read with me, uh, this guy in Oxford, uh, is really a Latinist. I mean, he, he was once a priest, and uh, I mean, he studied in Rome, and so on and so forth. So we work through this very carefully. But the introduction to the Mishnah 
he describes essentially the beauties of the Mishnah for Christianity. This is Surinusius. Moreover, he says, Jews have something to offer Christianity. If you study, so this is beyond the, the hermeneutical principles. By studying the content of the Mishnah, one can touch Jesus Christ. In other words, this is the age of Jesus. This is the age of early Christianity. If we want to get to closest to Christianity, forget about all these Greek texts or other texts. Study the rabbinic texts themselves. And all of a sudden, then we will understand where Jesus came from. The words that come out of his mouth in the New Testament are rabbinic utterances. And therefore, let us understand him in his Jewish context, because he was indeed a Jewish rabbi in the first place. So on the part of the Jews, and, and the Jews will then, if we study together with them the Mishnah, they will appreciate our truth as well. They will come to understand the New Testament from a rabbinic perspective, which will bring them closer to us. In the end, he is talking about a fusion of the two religions, loving Christians and loving Jews, all happy together studying the Mishnah. Sounds absolutely ridiculous, right? But nevertheless, it's an extraordinary, interesting moment in the history of Jewish-Christian relations. So that is Surinusia. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm doing well in terms of time. So now I want to take it one step farther. Um, Surinusius was read by a lot of scholars. Some of them thought he was a kook. The idea of studying rabbinic texts and publishing the Mishnah uh, was not uh, universally accepted by all Christian scholars. But nevertheless, every one of the chairs of Hebraic studies in Oxford and in, uh, in London, at the UCL by this time, uh, and in, in, uh, in Cambridge and so on, these uh, subjects were taken seriously. What is really interesting also you should know about the history of Christian Hebraicism in England and elsewhere is that most of these scholars were also accomplished Arabic scholars. And they also, so in other words, the idea, and, and they knew Semitic languages. So they, they knew you know, all of the ancient languages, but they also knew Arabic. And quite often, the chair was in Judaic and Arabic studies together. Uh, and they moved all over the place. I mean, it's really quite amazing uh, the, the range of these scholars and their interest and their ability to absorb uh, uh, Jewish culture. One of the greatest scholars of the 17th century was a man named John Selden. And that was, we're speaking about the beginning of the 18th century that preceded him who was a real expert on Roman and Jewish law. And he really not only knew the Mishnah, he knew the Gemara as well. He knew all of rabbinic law, uh, and he really conquered it. So at some point, these scholars become so accomplished that while initially they study with rabbinic uh, teachers, they can do it on their own. In other words, in some sense, you know, how do Jews react to this? You know, all of a sudden, we have now competition. Uh, there, there are people who are teaching our, our religion who are not of our religion. Uh, how can we understand this? And it, was, and it becomes quite a phenomenon. Just as in the, in the lifetime of Pico, you saw how many Jews reacted both positively and negatively to the idea of a Christian studying the Kabbalah. So now this brings me finally to William Wooten. William Wooten uh, was a child prodigy uh, in England, uh, especially gifted in learning languages. He acquired proficiency in Arabic, Syriac, and Aramaic, along with a broad education at Cambridge. In 1694, he gained uh, a claim because of a very interesting debate at the end of the 18th century, who are wiser, the ancients or the moderns? So this is a very big subject for the beginning of modernity, because up until this point, you know, it was Aristotle and Plato, they were the great minds, and then ever since then, you know, we have declined. 
But all of a sudden, in this period of time, we're saying maybe the moderns knew more, no more after all, that we have a, a, accumulated knowledge. So he, he's, he's a participant in this very larger cultural debate that goes all over Europe. But later on, he decides to write a book which is a commentary, a justification for the study of rabbinic Judaism by Christians, and a translation of two tractates of the Mishnah into English. Wooten's primary uh, achievement thus uh, in, in our story uh, is, um, uh, is really where I want to end up in terms of this lecture. Um, Will, uh, Wooten himself uh, uh, understood that he was part of a larger cultural tradition. At the end of the book, he publishes an appendix of all Christian scholars in early modern Europe who were studying Mishnah. And it's quite an impressive uh, array of scholars. It shows you that he was not only doing something which was innovative, but he was also creating a kind of invented tradition by which Christians study the Mishnah. Now, I want to reveal that in two ways. And I only have about five minutes, so I think I should go right to the texts uh, rather than talk anymore. So take out the two texts. One of them I'm going to talk about uh, very much at the end. But I want to turn to the last page of the text, which is small print here. It says postscript on the top, and it's signed by another character named Simon Oakley. Do you see that text? The last page. Yeah. Oakley was a professor of Arabic studies at Cambridge, very important guy, and Wooten waited several years to get his endorsement of this book. In other words, Wooten was a kind of uh, middle-sized scholar, but Oakley was a giant in his field. Oakley had written on Islam, but he had also translated into English uh, Leon Modena's Riti. Leon Modena, see how we're, everything is connected here. The Italian rabbi of the Venetian ghetto wrote a work called on justifying, explaining to non-Jews uh, the rituals and practices of Judaism. The book was translated into all kinds of languages and became a standard book for Christian Hebraists as well. Uh, Oakley had translated it into English. So we have an English version of this work by a 17th century Italian rabbi. Finally, the letter arrived, and Wooten was very thrilled. And I want to show you this document in, in its own words because it is really quite amazing to think of a Christian scholar sitting in Cambridge writing such things about the endor endorsing this work of Wooten, the, two trans the translations of two sections of the Mishnah. So I'm just going to read a little bit of it. We are obliged to you for having events beyond all contradiction that Hebrew learning is necessary for all us Christians. If I had ever had the opportunity I would most certainly have gone through the New Testament under a Jew. Okay? I mean, that's, of course, the way he would say it. Whatever some of our gentlemen may think, this I am well assured of, that they understand it infinitely better than we do. Isn't that an incredible statement for a Christian? They are thoroughly acquainted with all the forms of speech and all the illusions, which, because they occur but rarely, are obscure to us, though in common use and very familiar among them as has been admirably demonstrated by the learned Surinusius in his Reconciliator. That's the Sefer HaMashveh, the book that I was just describing to you. I remember that I had read in Father Simon. Now, Father Simon was another Christian Hebraist who was a Frenchman. I believe it is in his appendix to his Leonaboden. This 
was the French edition of Leon Modena before the English version came out. That's why Oakley knew it so well. That he once offered the epistle to the Hebrews from the New Testament, right? In Hebrew to a learned rabbi at Paris, who after he had perused it without taking any manner of notice of the difference in religion said that whosoever was the author of that book, he was a great Mikubal. Now that's confusing. Mikubal, of course, a Kabbalist. Uh, and thoroughly versed in all the traditions of the Jew Jewish nation. Did he really mean the mystical tradition? No, he probably meant a traditionalist. I mean, it's not really clear what he means here. I'm not sure Mikubal just makes things more confusing because we're, we're talking about the Mishnah here. We're not talking about Kabbalah. But nevertheless, he calls, he calls the author of the epistle of the Hebrews, he calls him a Kabbalist. The argument drawn from the novelty of the Jewish writings against uh, the usefulness of their learning deserves rather to be pitied than confuted. We do not make use of the opinions of modern rabbis, nor their uncertain conjectures for the confirmation of anything. But when we find expressions and allusions exactly the same with those in the New Testament, several petitions in the Lord's Prayer, and some of our Lord's parables in the Talmud, are we to suppose that they came thither by chance, or which is most ridiculous that the Jews borrowed them from the Christians, or rather which is the only true way of accounting for them uh, that they were in familiar use among the Jews in our blessed Savior's time? And of course, the answer is no. Um, so notice how he, he protects himself. Says, we, we don't believe in their beliefs, actually, but nevertheless, we need them. We need their, their, their method of study in order to understand who we are. So in other words, he sort of stops at the recognition that you can be, you know, Cyrenusius, I suggest, goes farther. He argues that we can become Jews and they can become Christians and we all can, you know, uh, dance around a circle and sing together as one united uh, group. But uh, th this Oakley is a much more reserved uh, gentleman from Cambridge and therefore he won't go that far. But nevertheless, notice how far he goes. I need a Jew to study my New Testament. I need a Jew to explain to me the context in which Jesus and his disciples emerged. It is a remarkable moment for uh, Christian Jewish understanding. Now, finally, I bring you to the last text. And I'm not going to really read it. I'm going to just talk about it for a second, or maybe just read two or three lines. So this is a text that Wooten published. Um, actually, he published it much after, uh, but it was written even before he wrote the, the, the translations of the Mishnah. Some thoughts concerning the proper method of studying divinity. This was a book, a manual written for seminarians, for those who were going to study for the Protestant clergy. And in it, he offers a syllabus and directions on what a student of divinity in an English Protestant context needs to know. It is an amazing text, because what you have before you, beginning on page 23, open the book, are a long list of Hebrew books or books about Judaism which they need to read to prepare themselves. But just look in the middle of page 23. To them he may with great profit join Surinusius' edition of the Mishnah. Again, we are, notice now Surinusius is going to be part of a curriculum of study for a Protestant uh, uh, a school of ministry. In other words, ministers, we're not talking about scholars now, we're speaking about practical ministers need to study the Mishnah. If he does that, I would advise him to read the respective titles in the Mishnah. And he talks the contents of the titles of the Mishnah are printed with the forthcoming translation of Shabbat and Eruvim. Those are the two chapters 
that we are speaking about. Um, um, we are, uh, are many of them independent upon one another in the order of which they lie in the Pentateuch without any regard to the order and so on. What follows are directions on how to study the Mishnah. Now notice just one more line. The Mishnah and, the common, and its commentators, you see that father down on the paragraph, will appear very dry. No kidding. Uh, and perhaps ridiculous at first to men who, who wholly unacquainted with their learning. But use will soon conquer that and the benefit which will thence arise towards the understanding, the Mosaic law will abundantly compensate the pains. And I speak from experience that all the Christian commentators put together, at least those that I have used, will not give a tenth part of the light to the understanding of the law of Moses that may be had by the help of the Jewish traditions. And he goes on and on. All right. Uh, and, and he gives you, actually, he gives you an example of uh, a Mishnah text of how one should read it and how one should translate it and so on and so forth. I'm, I'm almost done and then I'm going to ask your question. Um, so here is my little story. In other words, from the past, the reviving the past. Uh, there was a history here of a Christian involvement in, in Judaism. Does it change social attitudes? Do Jew, are Jews uh, emancipated in this period? No. Um, does it have any impact whatsoever? I, I don't know. Uh, but it, it's an interesting moment uh, of, the, of, of where Christians situate themselves in relationship to their mother religion, so to speak. Uh, it is an interesting moment of rediscovery coming out of, as I suggested, a kind of exegetical crisis of understanding their own tradition and the need to find it in the rabbis. I'm still not sure how the Mishnah really aids in understanding the New Testament. I mean, I'm not convinced that it works. But nevertheless, these guys did. And therefore, what we have, as in the 16th century, when Christians discovered the Kabbalah, here they discover the legal foundation of Judaism, and they make it their own. Not so much the Gemara, because the Gemara is later, right? I mean, so that's less relative, and it's also much harder. The Mishnah is in Hebrew, and the Gemara is in, uh, mostly in Aramaic. So therefore, you know, it, it, only the, the best of the best could, could move to the next stage of rabbinic study. But the Mishnah, having a revival, as we said, in the Jewish world, all of a sudden found itself now uh, uh, available, accessible, and relevant to Christian needs. And thus it became part of a... Christian tradition and even entered the pedagogy of the Protestant church in England in the beginning of the 18th century. Now let me now just give you a downer and I'm finished. Um, this doesn't last. In other words, the role of the historian to discover certain moments, sometimes they are fleeting. Uh, by the middle of the 18th century with the rise of the Enlightenment and people like Voltaire and others there is a new kind of emerging <clears throat> anti-Semitism, uh, a new denigration of rabbinic tradition, and there's sort of a movement away from Christian Hebraicism. Not totally, but to a great extent, the, the age of Christian Hebraicism is the 16th and 17th and beginning of the 18th century. This is, is clearly its peak. Uh, it will rise again, of course, in the 19th century when Christians rediscover the biblical texts and the Jewish traditions associated with that text and as I said, in the early 20th century, a Christian Hebraist in England named Hen Herbert Danby translates, is the first to translate the entire Mishnah into English. And if you look at his introduction, you will see he mentions Surinusius and Wooten and all of the earlier translations from which he built his own case. 
So ultimately, and I guess the irony is, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time, as you've heard, in Europe, uh, and my dear colleagues in Europe are, are a wonderful group of people, uh, but 90% uh, of them are Christians, uh, Hebrew-speaking Christians, but Christians. Uh, so the tradition, Jewish studies has come back alive and well in Europe. I, whether it remains that way in this new world of ours, I have no idea. Uh, but it, it, certainly after the Shoah, a whole group of people began to study Judaism, and uh, particularly the, the German students of mine who are absolutely fascinated with Judaism, but they're taught primarily by Christian scholars. So that Christian Hebraicism certainly has a tradition in England, but also especially in Germany, but that's another story. So thank you for listening to me. I am finished. Now, questions. Now, now you don't want to put your hand up? You, you go first, yes. The Mishnah we're talking the, I mean, about. The Mishnah was, right. but when Wooten translated it, did he translate it back from the Latin or was he translating <clears throat> from the Hebrew? He was an Hebraist and he was translating from the Hebrew. I'm sure he consulted uh, the Latin version of Surinuzi as he says he does all the time. Yeah. But he also knew Hebrew. There was no so, question about it. So for Maimonides, he... And he probably went back. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't translate Maimonides. Yeah, and I'm sure he consulted the commentaries. But the Surinusius edition, which is the deluxe edition with Maimonides' commentary completely translated into Latin, and Bertinorius translated into Latin, and Surinusius and so on, he did not translate. He only translated the Mishnah text, and only two, Shabbat and Eruvim. He was particularly interested in laws of Sabbath, because he was, as a Christian, he wanted to know what they were. And he found an understanding of the Sabbath from the perspective of Christianity in studying Mishnah, Mishnat Shabbat. Uh, so that's how he got to this. And it's an elaborate with charts and everything. I mean, he spends, he writes his own English commentary on this Masechet from the Mishnah. Uh, so, but clearly he mentions, as you see, they all mention Surinusius as, you know, the foundation of this scholarship. But notice, my argument that putting it into English now makes it, uh, it's a different ball game. In other words, now we are not, not only moving away from this Latin academic world, but we are uh, allowing people like seminarians, some of them knew Latin well, others didn't, I mean in Protestant England, uh, to uh, make this material available to them. Yes. Did Serenusius ever identify the name of the rabbi that sat down on the bench next to him? No, and I tried to figure it out. And he said he, you know, became. He, he says he was an atheist for a while. He tells us, uh, and and then he became uh, a believer in Jesus Christ. So I mean, he's a, I'm sure the kind of rabbi that maybe you would meet on a park bench. But uh, I, I I don't know if he was a fictional or real character. This whole story sounds ridiculous, but. He wanted to sort of introduce a character to sit next to him to tell him how the rabbis will lead us to salvation, and that's the. Well, it's hysterical because it reminds me of the unknown man in, in the Joseph story who points, you know, which way his brothers went. You don't never know his name, but he right. changed the course of history. Right. Right. Well, here we have right. this unknown rabbi who, for right. all we know, was just being sarcastic. Right. Right. And he changes the if, whole if, course. If he's a real rabbi at all, I mean, that's not. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, but that's that's good. All right, go over there, and I'll come back here, over here. You go on. Oh, yes, I'm, so yeah. the, the um, recommendation to use the Talmudic um, logic system for Mishnah and not for Gomorrah is kind of weird because it really is it's it's for Gomorrah more than it is for uh, for Mishnah. You're right. Um, so what 
after they did all of this, what did they learn? What was their successes? What, what did they actually come up with after they, uh, after they did all this study? I was afraid you were going to ask me that question. Uh, so I, I just wanted to point to the phenomenon, whether it really works or not, I have no idea. I actually tried to study some of this, uh, of this, uh, this Reconciliator book, as it's called in English. Um, and, you know, I, I think what it's good at is, is how uh, the New Testament paraphrases um, certain verses and how the rabbis do it as well. The rabbis don't always quote directly and indirectly. Um, I, I don't recall all the details, but it's basically what they're talking about is primarily how the text is expressed, how the text is written. They're really looking uh, at, at, at textual components within rabbinic Hebrew that can be compared to the way the New Testament was written. Now, the New Testament wasn't necessarily written in, in the original Hebrew, even though we have a Hebrew New Testament. Um, but nevertheless, they were, were thinking it was, uh, at least for the purposes of understanding. Or, you know, as Pico did, you saw that Pico also used hermeneutical principles uh, to, to apply it to all kinds of texts that weren't even Hebrew texts. Uh, so they were sort of stretching to do the same thing. Uh, I, I think it's a, it's a marvelous exercise based on false principles. Uh, it doesn't necessarily work. On the other hand, they were expressing a larger uh, cultural concern, which is, and which is relevant to our own day. You can't study ancient Christianity without knowing rabbinic Judaism, and vice versa. And as I alluded to in my, my first lecture where I talked about the development of Jewish studies today, um, I, Yale and, and Penn are two wonderful examples of that, two institutions that I taught at, religious studies departments, where it, indeed uh, there, there's a woman, um, uh, in fact, this is where I, I gave this lecture originally in her seminar. There's a woman at a Penn called uh, Annette Reed. She's half uh, um, Japanese, believe it or not. She did her, uh, just to show you the, the ecumenical aspect of Jewish studies today, she did her doctorate at Princeton University under Peter Schaefer, who was a German Protestant. Uh, who now is back in Berlin, and he's the head of the Jewish Museum in Berlin. He's now, uh, he's my age, he's in his early 70s. And he, he um, uh, so she's Japanese, half Japanese, uh, and she studied Christianity and Judaism. She was hired as our ancient Christianity scholar at Penn, uh, but she teaches Judaism uh, as well. And she goes back and forth between Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. She's a remarkable uh, young woman. Um, and we just uh, learned that she's leaving to go to NYU because they stole her away. Uh, she was also offered a job at Stanford. She's really a, a hot commodity. Uh, but my point is that now we have entered a world in, in the same way at Yale, where scholars who are coming to do study ancient Judaism, uh, by a Cheney, you know, the second commonwealth period in rabbinic Judaism, are studying Christianity and Christian scholars are no longer isolated. When I was at Yale, um, I uh, saw that Christian, uh, Christianity was studied with Judaism within the context of the Department of Religious Studies. But there's also Yale Divinity School. Uh, and they only study the New Testament uh, in Greek. And I approached them and I said, uh, what's going on here? You've got to study Judaism too if you're going to be a Christian seminarian. So I got to teach an introduction uh, course at the Divinity School for uh, the 11 years that I was at Yale. Um, and it was kind of fun, uh, uh, but you know they didn't really go beyond that. It was kind of a token course and so on. But clearly, Jewish studies has been revolutionized by this insight. So 
whether or not uh, this method really works in the long run, um, if you look at the academic journals where ancient Christianity and ancient Judaism are studied, all, all uh, Christian scholars are quoting now rabbinic texts, and rabbinic scholars are quoting New Testament and, and church fathers, uh, and they're, you know, I, not that there's an integrated social world, we're still lacking a lot, you know, in terms of the world that we live in, right, in terms of getting along with each other. But on the academic level, the intellectual level, there's this remarkable interchange uh, uh, and, 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 and connection uh, where scholars are being trained in ways that did not exist before. So in that sense, Cernusius and Wooten were pioneers in what they were trying to do. Whether they did so primitively or not, uh, they succeeded um, in creating this bridge between uh, the rabbis uh, and Christianity. Remember, I mean, again, I don't you know, uh, to miss the point that the rabbis were the bad guys from the perspective of, 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 of remember, this is a Protestant tradition Sola Scriptura, all we have to do is go back to the biblical text. We don't even need the Catholic Church. The, the Catholics are those horrible, are like the rabbis. They have brought in their own traditions and messed up pure Christianity. That will be a subject of my last lecture in this talk when I talk about Christian missionaries in the 19th century and what's going on there between Jews and Christians. Um, these Protestants were the ones to rediscover uh, rabbinic Judaism. Uh, and that is, an, as I said, a fascinating moment, uh, which, as in the end, uh, has ramifications for the way we study these two religions today. Yes? Two questions, if I can. One, you indicate that the, 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 these Christian scholars had difficulty reconciling the New Testament with the Old. Were they comparing it to the Septuagint or with the Masoretic text? And was that part of the problem? Was they were studying oh, more? That, that's well, the question. Se second question. Oh, okay. Before I lose my, my chance. Go on. Second question. You, you said that at the same time that this was going on, there was a revival of interest in the Mishnah by Jewish, right. by, by Jews. Right. But you didn't say anything about that. I thought I thought the Mishnah was always of interest of Jews. When did, when did it wane? Why did it start again? Um, the idea of, well, so let me answer the second part first. So, so uh, sure, I mean, you have to study Mishnah, and that's usually done by young kids uh, as preparatory, you know, or propedutic. That's a nice new word. We need another word, you know, you know propedutic. I write that down. Uh, I can't spell it, no, I, I don't know how to spell it. Um, but um, in other words, uh, young kids study Mishnah before they study Gemara. It's sort of a stage in the process, you know. And if you remember, I did it really quickly. The, the Maimonidean text. We talked about the Talmud saying there are three parts. First, you study, uh, you know, Bible, and you study Mishnah, then you study Talmud, and so on. Uh, so the Mishnah was always a kind of preparatory stage, but the ultimate goal was to study the Gemara or to study them together. You can't study one separately or break them off, and so on. Um, so there is a so th this doesn't completely stop. I mean, they study the Talmud in the early modern period, of course. But nevertheless, with, the, with print, we see the emergence of separate Mishnah books, which don't have the Gemara in them, and instead have medieval commentaries or, or early modern commentators. Uh, and, and this is advocated by the Maharal of Prague in Prague, uh, and, is, and, and, uh, and gains a certain popularity among adults as well as children. And then, of course, the Kabbalistic use of the Mishnah is totally different. I and mean, that's really crazy. That's just reciting words that have some kind of mystical significance. Why? Because the, the so-called author of the Zohar was? Louis. No, Moshe de Leon. 
Yeah, but the Shimon Bar Yochai, and he that's was a Tana. A Tana is a rabbi of the Mishnah period. So that's why they, the Kabbalists also rediscovered the Mishnah. Now, I was very careful not to say, is there a connection between the Christian study of the Mishnah and the Jewish study of the Mishnah in this period? I guess there, the bridge is Menashe ben Israel in Amsterdam who writes this, uh, this vocalized Mishnah, which is both for Christians and Muranos. Um, so there is some connection that somehow emerges, and I guess Jews are aware of all these Latin translations uh, and become popular because of them. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know how to link them more than that. In other words, they seem to be two parallel phenomena, which have their own life and their own uh, raison d'être. Um, and uh, but, but nevertheless, uh, they coexist in a really remarkable way. So it's not like the Mishnah has supplanted the study of the Talmud. No. But the Mishnah is now studied as a subject in itself for a variety of reasons among Jews. And we have all of these books, uh, the, these, these editions of the Mishnah with commentaries alone and without Gemara. Uh, now the first question I already Which forgot. Was, was, was it the um, Septuagint or oh. the Masoretic text that, that they were finding the difficulties reconciling with? So I'm speaking about the New Testament, Old Testament, but yeah, there are other translations of, so the Septuagint they were aware of. Uh, there were a whole series of extra biblical writings that were rediscovered in this period, uh, and like the Samaritan text that I talked about. Uh, so what they were having, and they were versions of uh, New Testament books that were not canonical. Uh, there was a guy named John Toland that lived in this period that discovered a, a new version of uh, a new chapter of the New Testament, uh, the epistle, I don't remember which epistle it was, but it, it was something that was different and so on. In other words, th there seemed to have been in this period a flood of new translations, of new critical tools, uh, of new ancient histories written by people, and they were sort of flooding the market and really challenging the simple equation that the New Testament simply is a... Uh, uh, connect it, it comes out of, emerges out of, supersedes the Old Testament. Um, and in particularly the question for them was how the Old Testament is so badly cited in the New Testament. Um, did it correspond to the Septuagint? Not exactly. Did it correspond to the Hebrew version? No. So how are, what, uh, how can New Testament authors make mistakes in citing the Old Testament? And does, does this not challenge the very notion that the New Testament and the Old Testament are linked in, in one religious experience? He's standing up, so that may mean something. Well, I'm just thinking that maybe one or two more questions, and I'll come up. All right, OK. So or unless you're finished, then we can. Any others? Questions? We have one question here, then I'll. All right, go on. Um, oh, you quoted Oakley, and, and I think also and as saying that they were studying this to be able to get closer to the New Testament, to better understand it, and they weren't taking the substance of the Mishnah. That's what Oakley says. Right. Uh, 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 Surya says that that's the, for him, it's, it's, it's Jews, he's like, he loved, it's all together, yeah. But, but did any of the substance of the law of the Mishnah end up creeping into Christian theology as a result of all of this? All right, or did the, or in fact, did they, did they really keep a wall between what their stated intent was and, and actually studying their text. That's a great question. I'm not sure I can answer it precisely, except to say, uh, and this will come up, I'm sure, I'm trying to think of which lecture, but one of my contentions in my book, you'll see there's a whole chapter called Mingle Identities. And I identify four different groups in the early modern period. What I mean by Mingle Identities is boundary crossings between Judaism and Christianity. 
One of them are the Muranos, the Conversos, which I'll actually speak about in the Amsterdam lecture. Uh, another are the followers of Shabtai Tzvi in my Shabtai Tzvi lecture, the Sabbateans, who convert to Christianity, particularly Jacob Frank, um, and thus perform a kind of Jewish Christianity. Um, a third group are individual converts who convert to, uh, from Judaism to Christianity, but nevertheless may, may retain a part of their own Jewish identity. The fourth group in that chapter are Christian Hebraists. In other words, that's the question I always ask my scholars, my scholar friends in Germany. Um, I once, do I have a minute just to tell, uh, to tell a story? So I, I was in Berlin teaching at uh, the Freie Universität in Berlin. Um, and my dear colleague there, uh, a, uh, a Christian, says, uh, uh, I want to invite you for dinner on Friday night. Uh, and I said to him, uh, I'll come under one condition, you let me make kiddush. Um, and uh, so uh, he said, of course. So I went out, and you know, he, was, he, was, he actually was an Italian uh, German, so, and he's a very fancy guy. He, he, you know, he, he dresses with Armani suits, and he has a, a little uh, you know, fancy car and everything. So I was kind of intimidated, what kind of wine am I going to bring him for dinner? So I went out, I bought the most expensive Spanish wine, because I was afraid to bring an Italian wine to his house. Get to the door, he's invited the, the 10 people who are in the Institute for Jewish Studies at the Freie Universität. They all speak Hebrew, they're all Goyim, they're, there's no Jews there. Uh, and he had gone to the Jewish quarter and bought a challah and this horrible sweet kosher wine, you know. Uh, uh, and, um, and they had candles. Um, and so I had to light the candles, and then I had to sing Shalom Aleichem, and then I had to do the Kiddush. Uh, and they knew all the words, but they didn't know any melodies, you know, I mean, they're going. Um, it, it was so, what I'm trying to say here is, is something, you get so close to text, I mean, you're asking this question, at some point, don't you sort of identify with Jews? Don't you become Jewish yourself? And in fact, many of these guys were accused of being Judaizers. Uh, they were accused of, you know, you get so, you're getting too close. There is this really interesting book that Richard Popkin, I don't know if you ever heard his name, uh, he was in LA for many years when he retired. Um, um, he, he, uh, um, he wrote a book about secret conversions of Christians to Judaism in, this, in the early modern period. And he does a bunch of case studies. There weren't many, but some of them actually converted, but were actually many of them were living in a kind of liminal world between Judaism and Christianity. So I, I call them mingled um, uh, identities. They weren't exactly Jewish, but they so identified with Jewishness. I mean, take this guy, Peter Schaefer, who taught for many years at Princeton and before that at the Freie Universität, and now is the, uh, at 70 uh, something, he took a job as the director of the Jewish Museum in Berlin, which is worth seeing. I don't know if any of you have been there. Um, uh, I, I once called him uh, a Christian. He was deeply offended. He said, don't call me a Christian, call me a Goy. <laughs> um, because he didn't want to identify with Christianity, he identified with Judaism, but he wasn't going to become a convert to Judaism. So it's really interesting to, when we talk about these scholars, who they were, what they were, how Judaism sort of fed their lives. Uh, so it, it's, it's really an interesting question you're asking about, you know, who they are, how they were influenced by it. And that goes back to the larger question, do intellectual attitudes transform social uh, behavior? Um, and in most cases, it doesn't necessarily create anything. I mean, you could, you know, uh, learn all this stuff and still hate Jews, and there were plenty of anti-Semites who knew Hebrew. But uh, nevertheless, you know, you still hope with a, that a person that exposes himself or herself to Jewish texts somehow is 
learns to appreciate and love the object of the text. Uh, and in the case of Serenusius, that certainly was the case, and a few others. This is a booming industry, the area of Christian uh, Hebraicism. It's a new field of Jewish studies, and more and more Christian scholars are writing uh, uh, books on these figures in early modern European culture who were fascinated with Jews and Judaism. So it's another part of our story, as you heard. Just uh, one last thing, and so I'm, I'm finishing my, my book, Sacred Trash, and I'm trying to figure out how, like, why would Oxford, Oxford Cambridge or Salman Shekhar, he was a, a Cambridge, Cambridge, why Cambridge would want the Cairo Geniza, and why would they have a, a Salman Shekhar, why would they have a chair, uh, I think he must have been in Jewish studies, something like that, so this fits into that, they, did, did they have that because they wanted someone there because they could interact with on these issues, or is that a similar type of... History well, Cambridge, Cambridge had a 300-year history of scholars in Judaism long before uh, right. Solomon Schechter. Um, it was also because what he's referring to, of course, is the discovery by Schechter and others of the Cairo, this Geniza uh, in Fustat, which is a suburb of Cairo. Uh, I, I was there in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the synagogue. Um, which they discovered in the attic of all of this. These words, he works with Hebrew letters that were thrown away. You don't, you know, you don't destroy if, if uh, Hebrew texts. You you bury them. In this case, they were actually put in an insulated chamber in the attic. Uh, but here, the subject is even larger because it's not just Hebrew works in the Geniza. There works with Hebrew letters, Judeo-Arabic. Remember, we talked about Judeo-Arabic being being in in. in uh, uh, written Hebrew letters, but it's Arabic. So there are all kinds of business letters, there are all kinds of laundry lists, there are all kinds of grocery lists. Everything is stored in this work and so on. Uh, Schechter, uh, you know, Cambridge had a long history of Hebraic and Arabic study, and therefore it made total sense. It was also the Muslim traditions. Uh, the Geniza has not only revived Jewish scholarship, Jewish learning in the Muslim period, now I'm giving another lecture, you see, I'm going to shut me up. <laughs> Uh, but uh, we don't have texts like this for Christians and Muslims about ordinary life of human beings. And therefore, it is really important to medieval scholars as well, not just the Jewish scholars. But, the, but there was this history of having a chair in Jewish studies at these famous universities. Absolutely. Four centuries back to the time, at this time that I've been describing even earlier. Okay, so good book to read. Take a trash. Thank you all for coming out.